Open your Bibles, please, if you would, to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. Psalm 115. We'll read our text in a bit, uh, so uh, just keep your fingers there if you would. In a book that came out last year by N.T. Wright, he wrote on uh, the wonders of the Psalms. It's called The Case for the Psalms, Why They Are Essential. It's a small book, but I found it tremendously helpful. Let me just read you several quotes. The Psalms offer us a way of joining in a chorus of praise and prayer that has been going on for millennia and across all cultures. And then later he says, I propose in this book that the regular praying and singing of the Psalms is transformative. And then sing these songs and they will renew you from head to toe, from heart to mind. Pray these poems and they will sustain you on the long, hard, but exhilarating road of Christian discipleship. It's a wonderful book, but I actually was more intrigued by the afterword. Um, he writes uh, about, um, it's entitled, My Life with the Psalms. And he mentioned in passing that he reads through the book of Psalms once a month. Um, intrigued by this, I decided to look further into the matter. Not being part of a liturgical uh, tradition like the Anglicans, I failed to realize that, at least among the Anglicans, they, in their morning and evening prayers and their weekly worship, read through the Psalms every month. This is something that the church does as a whole. What I did do, though, is I found an arrangement, if you wish, a system for reading through the Psalms each month. And this is how it goes. It's based on the number of the day of the month. So tomorrow, for example, is December 1st, and so you would read Psalm 1. Then you add 30, Psalm 31, and another 30, 61, 91, and then Psalm 121. And if you do this in a 30-day month, like November, you will read through the 150 Psalms in one month. And so that's what I've been doing for much of this past year. The first half of my life, the King James Version, was the version I read and was familiar with. And some of the Psalms, like Psalm 23 and Psalm 1 that I memorized, I memorized in the King James. The second half of my life, it's been the NIV that I have read and here at church that we have used for the reading from the Old Testament. But I decided in reading through the Psalms to use another translation and to hear somebody else read it as I followed along. And so I went to esvbible.org, a website, and they provided that opportunity. There's someone who reads it, and you follow along, and I'm able to read five psalms a day uh, following this method. And in doing this, something has made an impression on me, and that is vocabulary. It isn't just that the ESV is different than the King James or the NIV. Um, there are those differences to be sure. But it, in fact, was the more familiar vocabulary, the words that I've heard my whole life, that I found myself, as I read, as I listened to somebody else read, that I found myself asking, what does this word mean? And invariably, I don't know if this is good to admit, but a scene from Princess Bride came to mind 
where Inigo Montoya tells Vizzini, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. And I found myself in hearing the Psalms read in a new translation, but the familiar words, and asking myself, well, what exactly does that mean? That's a word I've heard my whole life, but what does it mean? I think one of the dangers in reading scripture is that we assume and don't give it a second thought that we know exactly what a particular word means. And we go on from there. If you think about it, words are a form of shorthand. Um, rather than giving a full explanation or the, having the content there, it's, we just simply use a word. My concern, which emerged in my going through the Psalms, is that we have words but we may in fact have forgotten the explanation or the content or in overuse or overfamiliarity, they have come to mean something entirely different. If you'll let me digress here for a moment, we saw this when we went through the book of Revelation when we looked at the matter of symbols. In Revelation 5 we read, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. When we went through the book of Revelation, we saw that the meaning of a symbol is not what we choose to make it. We don't get to choose what the symbol means. And that John himself did not create these symbols, uh, if you wish, out of his own imagination. When he presents the Lord Jesus Christ as lion and lamb in Revelation 5, it's not because he thinks that these are pretty pictures. But because, in fact, lions and lambs in Scripture have already been established as to what they represent. So we don't have the right to say, well, I know what a lion is. I, I, I know exactly what John is saying. So I know what they symbolize. Or I know what a lamb is and I know what it symbolizes. No, we must look at how these images, these symbols are used in the rest of Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, which, which is where John got his images, if you wish. Now, if this is the case for images which are familiar, like a lion and a lamb, just think how much more difficult it is for other images that are not familiar to us. Um, we need to understand a couple of things. And again, we went through this in Revelation, that first of all, all of creation is primarily symbolic. Creation is a revelation of God. It reflects his glory. It reflects some aspect of his nature. We are made in his image, if you wish. We, in some ways, are symbolic of who God is. And symbolism is based on analogy, it's not realistic. It isn't like this represents this. And so when you have an image like a lion or a lamb in Revelation 5, it isn't like, oh, this is one for one. That in fact, that may represent a number of things. Um, if you wish, you call it collectivity. In poetry, or like poetry, biblical symbolism is evocative. The language it uses is to evoke particular thoughts or images in our minds. Now, we're told several things in Revelation 5 about the Lord Jesus, that he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this goes back to the book of Genesis, Genesis 49, when Jacob pronounced on, uh, the blessings on his sons. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. 
You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Clearly, a prophecy regarding the Lord Jesus, the coming Messiah. And he comes from the tribe of Judah. But the second thing, which might be a bit more difficult, is that he is the root of David. And this is not something we would expect to hear. We are much more accustomed to what we hear in Isaiah chapter 11, that refers to the Messiah as a shoot from the stem of Jesse. Jesse is David's father, um, and it's Boaz, Obed, Jesse, then David. And somewhere down the line, the Messiah would come out as a branch, a shoot from Jesse. But here we are told in Revelation 5 that he is the root. We might say, how can that be? Well, part of it is our, our, our problem or our understanding of history, in which we see things purely as cause and effect, in which each event causes something down the line. And so we think very linearly, if you wish, in terms of past, present, and future. And for the most part, this is true, but it's not the whole truth. There's much more to it. This is not a biblical view of things, by the way. I think it's much more in terms of evolutionary things that you go from the past to the present to the future. History isn't simply a matter of the past causing the future. It is also true that the future determines or causes the past. Now, some people would reject this, but let me, let me suggest to you an illustration. If you pack a lunch and somebody asks you, what are you doing? You answer, I'm, I'm packing lunch because I'm going to have a picnic today in the park. In a real sense, that picnic, which has not yet happened, it's a future event, is causing you to pack a lunch. And in fact, if the lunch is already packed, that's a past event. And here you are in the present telling someone, this is what I'm going to do. A future event, which has not yet happened, has in fact caused the past. In the same way we would say with Jesus, even though Jesus comes after David, he is the Messiah who comes after the fact, because he is the future, he determines the past, and so he is the root of Jesse. He is the root of David. So he is both the branch and the root. All of this to say, and there we're looking at symbolism, all of this to say that When we read scripture, we need to take care that symbols, but let's leave symbols aside for the moment, even words themselves do not necessarily have the meanings that we assign to them. We do not have the right, we do not have the freedom to have words mean what we want them to mean. What I would like to do today, and the Lord willing, uh, for the next few weeks, is to consider some familiar words from scripture relearn what they mean, recover their content, and hear them as they were intended. I want to begin with, I think, a very familiar word, which is found in different forms throughout Scripture, and that word is bless. We also hear blessed, blessing, and blessedness. In our text today, we hear it in verses 12, 13, uh, 15, and 18 as well. So, 
I'm going to read from the ESV. You, most of you have uh, the NIV, but follow along if you would as I read. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. It's amazing. It's a remarkable psalm. It begins by asserting God's authority and his omnipotence. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And it continues by contrasting that with the powerlessness of idols. And points out that those who follow idols, those who trust in idols, become like the things that they worship. I think a most intriguing uh, notion and something perhaps in the future we will explore. But then a contrast is made. These people trust in idols, but we should trust in the Lord. The call is to trust in the Lord. If you look at verses 9, 10, and 11. O Israel, trust in the Lord. Verse 10. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. Verse 11. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. And then the writer points to the reality of God's blessing. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord. And then there's a final contrast between those who are dead and those who are alive. It is the living who bless God. Verses 17 and 18, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. As I said, it's an amazing psalm. It's a remarkable psalm. But one time as I was going through the book of Psalms, as I read this, I was struck by how bless is used in verses 12 and 13. It's used in the way that we normally think of. Um, it's, and it's used four times. Will bless. The Lord will bless. It is the Lord who blesses. And yet in verse number 18, it is God's people who will bless the Lord. Now, I don't know about you if this strikes you as strange. We're familiar enough with the notion that God blesses his people, but his people blessing God, blessing the Lord. Um, okay, what exactly does this word bless mean? And that's what I want us to look at the rest of our time together today. The various uses of bless in Scripture. The first time we find this word in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 1. 
On the fifth day of creation, we read, So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And then on the sixth day of creation, and this I think we are more familiar with, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And here what we find is, I think, what we normally think of when we think of bless or blessing, and that is the bestowing of good. Specifically, um, in this context, it is the, the bestowing, the giving of the pleasure and the power to increase in number. See, God doesn't say, okay, you guys, you guys go over there and increase in number. God blesses them. He bestows on them that pleasure and that power of reproduction of increasing in number. This is how we generally see bless used in Scripture. And if you look carefully, the context of what you're reading will determine, in fact, the character of what is bestowed. So that, generally speaking, we would not say that all of God's blessings, if you wish, have to do with increasing in number. Okay? on the fifth day of creation, on the sixth day of creation, this is a very specific context. And so here, God's bestowing of good on his creation is for the purpose of increasing in number. So the context will determine what the blessing is that God is bestowing, the good that he is bestowing. But one thing seems clear, and that is, it is the creator who is the source of blessing. The creature is the recipient of that blessing. However, this is only one way in which blessed is used in Scripture. And for our purposes today, we will stick to the book of Genesis. The second way is setting apart and consecrating. In Genesis chapter 2, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, the Sabbath day. So, when God blessed it, it was not so that it would increase in number, necessarily, reproduce, but in fact, he set it apart that this is a special day. The third way that it is used, and we find this in our text today, is when the creature blesses the creator. In Genesis chapter 24, Abraham sends uh, the servant he trusts the most, Eliezer, to go out and find a wife for his son Isaac. And if you know the story, he goes, (coughs) excuse me, he goes uh, back to where uh, Abraham was from, and he prays to God and says, "If you know, the women are going to come out and I'm going to ask for water. And the one who says, here, I'll give you water, but I'll also give water to your camels. That's the one. And when this happens with Rebecca, then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has led me by the right way. So here we have a human being, a creature, pronouncing a blessing on the Creator. The fourth way it is used is when human beings bless other human beings. And again, in the book of Genesis, we find this a number of times. Um, 
here again in Genesis 24, Eliezer goes and he, Rebecca is the one, and so he wants to take her back. And the family says, "Well, hold on, let's let her stay for a while, and then and then you then you can go." And he's like, "Listen, God's brought me here this this quickly, this far. I need to take off with her right now." And they say, "Well, let's ask Rebecca." And they ask Rebecca, and she says, "I will go." Then her family pronounces a blessing on her. And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of tens of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. And then the familiar story in Genesis 27, when Jacob deceived his father and took the blessing that was intended for Esau. So he came near him and kissed him. Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. It occurs a number of other times in Genesis, but one last thing I would mention is in Genesis 49, when Jacob blesses his sons. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each one with the blessing suitable to him. The fifth and final way that we see blessed used in Scripture, and here we leave the book of Genesis and go to the New Testament, is when human beings bless food, or they pronounce a blessing on food. Here we find Jesus doing this when he feeds the 5,000 in Matthew 14. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. In Luke 24, the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. So bless is used in a number of ways. But let's go back to the first way that it is used. Um, Because this is the primary way, I think, in which we hear it used in Scripture. Certainly, it is the way that most Christians use it today that is of some benefit that God gives to us. It is in terms of benefits that most people think when it comes to the word of bless or blessing. But in reality, this is secondary. This is not the primary focus of the word bless. The primary factor of blessing is a statement of a relationship between the two parties. That is to say, on some level, a blessing is not pronounced on a person or a thing without, with whom there is no relationship. In fact, the pronouncing of a blessing confirms that there is, in fact, a relationship. God blesses with a benefit based on that relationship. The blessing makes known that there is, in fact, a positive relationship between the giver and the recipient, And the recipient, I think, should become aware, they should become aware that, in fact, their their relationship has value and it is desirable. I found it fascinating in in studying for this 
that the word bless in its various forms is found far more often in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. And it is found more often in Genesis than any other book in Scripture, even more than the Psalms, which really surprised me. I would have thought that the Psalms would have been a place where we would hear of God's blessing his people. But I would remind you that it is in the book of Genesis that we learn of God's relationships that he establishes with various parties. And I will just mention some of them. The first is with his creation. That's why he blesses his creation. It is his work. It isn't as though God is making something and he, and he has no connection with it whatsoever, that he's going to make it and just sort of send it adrift. Um, there is, in fact, a bond. And so he bestows benefits on his creation. And then his relationship with humanity in Genesis 5. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Human beings aren't simply these figures that sort of run around on the planet. These are those who are made in God's image. He created them, male and female, and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. In Genesis 9, God establishes a covenant with Noah and his sons. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. When God called Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. The covenant with Abraham cannot take place if there is not a relationship between God and Abraham. The bestowing of benefits can only happen because, in fact, there is, if you wish for lack of a better way to put it, a positive relationship between God and Abraham. It continues with Abraham's son Isaac. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. In Genesis 32, we have the fascinating story when the Lord wrestled with Jacob all night. Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. On the face of it, it's the most remarkable thing to say. If somebody ambushes me and wrestles with me, why do I want that person, in fact, to bless me? Because I would say that in the course, you know, oftentimes I think when I've thought of this, I've thought of guys sort of grunting and wrestling or whatever. I think that there was a conversation going on. And before everything is said and done, or, you know, at the end of things, there is, in fact, a relationship. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. It is, in fact, the cementing of a relationship between God and Jacob. Jacob, who thought he could do everything by himself, by tricking his father, by tricking his father-in-law, comes to realize that whatever he has is because God has blessed him. Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. God has been gracious to him. We need to understand, as we read this word, God blesses with a benefit on the basis of the relationship. 
But the benefits that are conveyed are secondary. The gift is secondary. What is primary is the relationship. We would do well to remember this. I think every sane person wants to be blessed. And even people who do not believe in God speak of blessing and of being blessed. But even we who are God's people, I think we have forgotten that the gift is secondary. What is foundational, what is primary, is that we have a relationship. God has established a relationship with us. We are his people. And therefore, he wishes to convey, he wishes to bestow blessings on us. question comes up, and a number of questions will come up, I think, in this series. Does God bless people who are not his people? And I would say absolutely, because they are made in his image. There is, in fact, a relationship. But the nature of the relationship determines the benefits, if you wish, that are bestowed and how they are seen and appreciated. But the primary thing is relationship. And I think that this begins to help me, at least, understand what it means when we say that we will bless the Lord or that we bless the Lord. Obviously, we cannot bestow benefits on God. We cannot give anything to God. What are we going to give to God? We, we cannot. He is the creator. We are the creatures. So the focus is not on the benefit that we might bestow. But in fact, on the relationship. That is why if you were following along in the NIV, in verse number 18, it does not have the word bless. It has the word extol. And other translations use the word praise. And for a number of English translations, when the word in Hebrew for bless is used, they will in fact use the word praise. Because this, the relationship is primary, the benefit, whatever is exchanged is secondary. We cannot give anything to God, but we can in fact praise Him. And we thank Him for what He has done. When we translate bless as praise, as many translations do, then we preserve something very important, and that is the place of relationship. We need to understand relationship in, a, in order to understand blessing. The human response to God, God's blessing in praise or blessing God, is entirely understandable. It is an understandable response. God has given to us. He has, if you wish, blessed us because we are his people. There is a relationship. And because we are his people, we respond with praise or with blessing to God, the one who has given us all things. But the things are secondary. I cannot stress that enough. What God has given us is secondary. What is primary is that there is a relationship. And we've seen it, his relationship with his creation, with his people, those made in his image. Human praise is the one benefit which we may in fact give to God in return for what he has given us. And it confirms something that we may forget and we need to be reminded that we are in relationship with God. He is our father and we are his children. I hope that this is the beginning of a study of the vocabulary of scripture. 
hopefully correcting wrong definitions or usage, or perhaps confirming. I, I don't know if you ever, if this happens to you, have you ever written out a word or typed out a word and you're like, that doesn't look right. But in fact, it is right. But something happens, we've just sort of forgotten. And I think sometimes with the vocabulary of Scripture, we're like, what does that mean again? I, I think I know what that means. And in fact, we may be right, but it does us good to go back and, and review and, and, and think again and, and remind ourselves, yeah, that's, that's what that means. Bless, is, as, as I said, is used in other forms. Uh, blessed, and the Lord willing, we will look at it next week, the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. And yet we find passages in which it is said that God is blessed. Um, what can that mean? Blessedness, but also the matter of blessing and cursing. How is that possible that the same God can give blessing and cursing? I hope that, by God's grace, we will deal with these and deal with the questions that come up with them, like, can you force God to bless you? It seems to be an issue that people have answered incorrectly, I think, in our generation. What I want us to see today as we begin is that the connection or relationship to God is the basis of blessing. The, the things that God gives us, those are wonderful, those are great, and we give thanks, but they are secondary. They are a reflection of something even more basic and primary, and that is that God is in relationship with his people. Let's pray together. Father, I think ever since Eve we have in our default position, in our minds, wanted to take your place. And even when we have your word, the word of God, we give it meanings and definitions that we want. And sometimes this is not done maliciously. Perhaps it is carelessness or over-familiarity. When it comes to the matter of you blessing things, blessing your creation, blessing your people, Blessing all people. In a consumer society, may we not get wrapped up in things. But may we recognize that behind all this, what is most important is a relationship. We are made in your image. We are being remade in the image of Jesus Christ. And by your grace, you give us those things that we need. You bestow, you convey far more than we need how generous you are to each one of us. I thank you that you loved us first and that you called us to be your people. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have all blessings. I thank you that you called us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.